0: 14 now? Is anybody out there? Okay, open up to Mark chapter 14 as we trust the Word of God to do its work in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to the blessing and glory of our great God. We found ourselves in this portion of the Scripture, this portion of the Gospel that is the most important week in all of covenant history. In all of redemptive history, since God created the world, until he comes back, until that next moment of his return, this is the most significant, powerful, world-changing, seismic shifting week of all. This week that we call Holy Week, Easter Week where he rode in the donkey, he challenged people in the temple, he foretold of people's destruction because of their rejection of him, he foretold of his kingdom coming, and now he has gone into privacy where he will enjoy the Passover meal with his disciples, foretell of their betrayal and their their forsaking and their denial of him as he is awaiting the, the crucifixion that looms over him. That crucifixion that has been looming over him for his whole ministry. He has known the whole time. I am here as a lamb of God. That was, that was the first word spoken over him by John the Baptist. There's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How? He would be butchered for the sins of the world. He would carry the sins of the world. This, this has been hanging over him his whole ministry. In fact, this has been hanging over him his whole life. Do you know that? I don't recommend doing this with wonderful ladies, new children, but when Jesus was a little baby and brought up to the temple, the, the prophet, a grabbed, uh, somebody there who was awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises, picked up the baby and said, This child will have a spear run through it. This child will be the rising and falling of many, and, and the spear will go through your heart, Mary. You're going to be brokenhearted at the life of this child. Imagine that at a baby dedication service here at church. Awkward. And and yet, over his whole life is hanging this prophecy. There will be blood, but through it there will be life. There will be the crucifixion. I, I wonder how many crucifixions Jesus saw in his life growing up. It was a common occurrence in Israel that the Romans would butcher somebody publicly, nakedly, so everyone can be reminded this is what happens to rebels. And Jesus saw them. He would walk past them as there was revolts and uprisings and they were butchered to trees and they were crucified. He saw many Surely his heart was preparing him. His whole boyhood, his childhood, his teenage years, his his adult years, and in, in fact his whole ministry. He knows that the reason he has come to this world to live is so that he may die. And now we're at this this juncture where he, in verse <coughs> in uh, 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 in verse twelve, begins to look forward to that in- incrementally closing hour. Look at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, that is the great festival that all the Jews would go and celebrate in Jerusalem, starting with the Passover day, and then the next seven days were the days of a feast. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?" And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went into the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. We're not going to spend a lot of time exegeting that this morning because that's pretty much just telling the story. But it is, a, it is an amazing situation where Jesus is prophesying, giving a, a strange situation, go into the city. You'll notice a guy carrying water because that was usually the lady's job. Ask him, that servant will take you to a house and he'll just have a room ready for us. So Something would have inclined that man to just prepare a Passover meal feast room in his upper room Uh, if you had not, this is like, this is peak holiday season in Jerusalem if you have not already booked a room you're not celebrating Passover anywhere and yet miraculously here is Jesus in the moment having a room ready for him and we continue to read in verse 17 when it was evening he came with the twelve and as they were reclining at table and eating Jesus said truly I say to you one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. And then they began to be sorrowful and to say to him after one another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping his bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, Uh, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this morning. Sections of verse 22 to verse 25, we're going to take as a as a topical study next Sunday morning and just treat in detail the, the institution and the sacrament and the theology of the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. We'll do that next week. For now, we're going to be recounting the, the, the explanation that, that Mark gives to us after the, the explanation of Peter, who was there at the time. We're going to be re, uh, reading and understanding what he has said has occurred in this four loading evening. First of all, we see back in verse 12 that, that it was the day of the, the first day of the unleavened bread, which is when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So this is the day of Passover. We were making note last week, and we will remind ourselves again today of how perfect and evident God's sovereign plan was, such that when Jesus came to earth to be the sacrifice for sins, he would be killed on the very period, the very night, the very day, the very 24-hour period. Period when all through the years the Jews had been remembering their redemption from Egypt's Egyptian slavery for, for 1500 years. On this very day, every year, they would kill a lamb in their house to remember that in the generation that left Egypt, that were rescued from slavery, the eldest son would die. Or you kill a lamb and put the blood over your household. In every household, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. And now as Jesus comes down from heaven, he will be both the dead lamb on the cross and the dead son of God. He would not be dying for the salvation only of his own blood family. He would be dying for the salvation of everybody who believes on him. And this is the perfect sovereignty of God that throughout all these years, they've been waiting for this very moment. Every sacrifice in Scripture, in the Old Testament, was pointing to Jesus in some way. But God had chosen the Passover to be that most clear sacrifice. It would so clearly articulate the redemption of Jesus. And so it is on that very day that he would be betrayed and the next morning killed. God had intentionally aligned the two, the Passover and the destruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the very night that blood was flowing through the streets. You need to get into your mind the barbaric nature of this old sacrificial system. Not barbaric as in sinful, just barbaric as in fleshy, butchery and gory. So I'm sorry if you're a bit squeamish this morning, but but as the the sheep's throats would be cut and the blood would be spilt out, and remember, you've got upward of three or two million people, the different estimates will say, in the city at the time, and in every household, they are killing a lamb, liters of blood are gushing out. They said that there would be a, a red river of blood flowing down the mountain through the Kidron Valley. That's the very valley that Jesus will walk across later on that evening to the Mount of Olives. He's, he's stepping over the, the flowing blood that is symbolizing his own death. In the, the very night that he's walking with the disciples through Jerusalem to go to the, 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 the room that they're going to celebrate the Passover, he's hearing the lambs be killed. He's hearing the Jews sing their songs of salvation. He's witnessing the families gather around tables, and he's watching the blood flow. It was also perfectly orchestrated by God. As he was being tried and beaten later this evening into the early hours of what would be Friday morning. As Jesus was being tried and beaten and mocked, every single home in the city were talking about the redemption that God had brought 1,500 years ago in Egypt. Every single family was talking about the lamb that dies and whose blood will save us. That's what they're all talking about. A whole city awakened with this understanding. And yet the truth was that life would be coming out of the death of Jesus Christ that's what it was pointing towards every single home would have been talking about the fact that God had redeemed them from Egyptian slavery and yet what it was pointing to is that we would be freed from the tyranny of the devil and bondage to sin through the blood of Jesus. Every single one of them was remembering that the blood of the Lamb saved them from the wrath of the destroying angel. And yet in that very night, Jesus was telling his disciples that the new covenant in his blood would cleanse them of their conscience and bring them into perfect unity with God, saving them from the wrath to come. Every house in the story of the Exodus had a dead lamb or a dead son and every house in Jerusalem now was telling that story right now and then in the next morning they would walk out and they would watch the true exodus happen with their eyes as they chanted and they cheered for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God had brought these things together in his perfect sovereignty. Next though we see, we see this horrible, harrowing prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down at verse uh, 17. Verse 17. It says that they went into the city, and as they were reclining and eating, verse 18 tells us, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him after one another, is it I? The other gospel tells us that even Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi all we see here is just this, the most, the most horrible act of betrayal that has ever happened in history, but, but lack of which some of us have experienced. I'm sure I probably wouldn't have to press too hard before some of you were able to come forward with stories, and you can remember times when, when maybe a, a good friend and a coworker cheated you out of some kind of business deal. Maybe there was embezzlement involved in something. Maybe maybe you were working with people and they were using you, and you you were manipulated, and you didn't realize. Maybe somebody promised you the world, and they brought got you to sell in on maybe a, maybe a church venture, maybe a business venture, maybe maybe a romantic venture, and then you found yourself betrayed and used. Maybe you had a best friend that simply lied to you and was speaking evil about you behind your back and you you couldn't take it upon yourself to ever join with them in friendship again. I'm sure we've all experienced something of a close friend or companion betraying us. This is what Judas did and it was to fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 41 verse 9 that was read for us in our call to worship. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. There is a significance in that this prophecy says he ate my bread. It's amazing how specific this prophecy is because as Jesus was, was running the Passover meal, it was his dime that had provided it all. He was the presiding host over the meal as the Jews would have. It was his meal. They were, they were his guests in fact, it's, it's, it's said that the person you dip the bread to, we all know this feel when mum's made an awesome roast lamb and nothing's left but the sop in the bottom of the slow cooker and the teenage boys just get a handful of bread, sop it all up, mop it up, put it into a mush in their bowl and feast on it for the next few days Leftover, I can't be the only one doing that. I'm not the only one who grew up doing that. Well, it's like that. The, 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 the guest of honour would sit just near to the host and they would receive the blessed dip and the the beautiful sweet bread. Judas is the guest of honor at Jesus' Passover and he receives a piece of dipped bread from the hands that he would soon betray. There is no greater act of betrayal that is imaginable Jesus has been his friend all these years, given him opportunity, given him grace, given him friendship and all of these amazing powers to do all sorts of things. And in Luke's gospel, we read that, Jude, that Satan entered into Judas. I wonder on his descent down into hell, how many of the demons mocked him after he had cast them out of their subjects and then they see him plummeting into the gates of hell. I wonder how many of them would mock him and laugh and take the cruel irony at the fact that he now joined them. Judas had been given so much grace and power by the Lord Jesus and opportunity and now he is seeking to betray him. It's sinful enough when you... Pick on somebody, victimize somebody, brutalize somebody, kill somebody that is of no friendship to you, that that is just not even an enemy. They're just a civilian, they're just innocent, and, and you take them and you kill them. That's bad enough. It is infinitely worse when they are literally the greatest friend and most righteous man that has ever walked the earth. And Jesus is looking at him in his eyes. This was a moment for Judas. Up until now, he thought that he was entirely secretive. No one knew his plan, and no one was going to be able to figure out his plan before he betrayed Jesus. He had said that he was waiting for a moment, that he would run to the scribes, tell them, Jesus and the disciples are here, you can get them, here's the secret place, and they would quickly arrest him, take him away, give Judas his money. No one would be the wiser, no one would understand. But right at this moment of the Passover, as Judas' heart is beating and, and his sweat is no doubt darting out of him and he's thinking, when can I go? When can I make my money? How can I have him killed? Jesus looks at him around the table and says, one of you will betray me tonight. And he has the audacity to say, surely not I, Rabbi. It's one thing and it's sin enough to be betraying him in such a crafty, horrible way. It is infinitely more guilty. And Jesus increases his guilt at the moment when Jesus Jesus tells him, I know what you're about to do. Do not do it. He gave him a warning. He gave him a warning. It would be better if you were never born than you go and do this, Judas. Don't do it. And Judas acts none the wiser. He acts as if Jesus is a fool. He's mistaken. He can't possibly know. And he says, Surely not I, Jesus. Surely not I, teacher. And yet Jesus assures him in that moment look at verse 21. He assures him in the moment that this is exactly and precisely according to the holy and sovereign plan of God. Do you remember the thread that we've been painting? Throughout this whole week, the enemies rise up and either God just topples them or he allows them to do exactly what they want to do for his own glory. And all over, we've been saying Psalm 118, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes how he, was, he is able to weave together his own sovereign plan, the responsibility and accountability of humans, the evil of man, the righteousness of God to bring about such an awesome moment of the cross. But look at verse 21. As Judas is sitting there trying to pretend that he has no evil plan, Jesus assures him, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The Son of Man. The Son of Man is the great, powerful, coming King of the Jews, the Messiah. Nobody tricks or overpowers him. He's the one that receives authority and power of eternity from God himself. When you're a Jew and you know that you're in the ring up against the Son of Man, it's a KO immediately. You don't even show up for that fight. You don't even think of it. And Jesus is telling him, the one you're betraying is the Son of Man. And he's not going according to your cunning. He's not going because you've outsmarted the All-Holy One. He's going as it is written of him. Jesus, in this whole encounter tonight, between the disciples, Judas, even his enemies, and of course all the disciples and Judas, He is the only one that is comfortably resting in the will of God. It's going to go worse for him this evening. He's going to have the worst night ever out of all of them and yet he is the only one resting in the will of God. How how we can just glean lessons for that. It doesn't matter how, how horrible life is going or how great life is going. The only safe place is not peace and is not comfort, it's not riches and it's not everything being stable. It's not that and, and and nor either is necessarily instability and horrible finances and all of that being a horrible place to be. Where you want to be, whether in the hot or in the in the cold, whether in the horrible or in the peaceful, is right in the center of the will of God. If we would just take this lesson to know the scriptures, know what it commands, and follow the leading of God, we will find ourselves like Jesus, at peace amidst a storm, at peace amidst betrayal, at peace in the will of God. He tells him, the Son of Man is going exactly as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That's where he says the line, it would be better for you, for that man, if he had never been born. So it's sin enough, of course, to be betraying somebody out of your own cunning and craftiness, but Jesus increases his guilt. It is infinitely more sinful to be betraying somebody, taking out an action when you know for certain that what you're doing is against the decreed will of God. He just told him, don't do it. God is opposed to you. God will will make your life such after death that you will wish you never existed. His sin is multiplied. And yet in this moment, Jesus is genuinely warning him, genuinely giving him grace as if to say, repent in this moment. Don't go through with it. Don't go and betray me. I, I don't know how it works that Jesus can genuinely tell him, don't do it when he knows Judas has to do it. If Judas had received the the repentant heart and and listened to the warning and didn't betray Jesus, what would happen to our salvation? There would be no crucifixion. And yet, this this is the divine sovereignty, the human accountability. You hear God's warnings from Scripture... You don't care. You don't mind. You don't even dare think about what God's thinking about. You listen to what scripture says. You repent of your sins. You turn away from your action. You find yourself in the will of God. You apologize for your sins and God will bless you. But Judas did not hear that warning. Judas refused to listen to the warnings of Jesus. And therefore, one of the men, one of the 12 men who had the brightest light of revelation who had the most explanation of the kingdom, who had the closest access to the king on earth, one of the 12 men with the greatest light was held the most responsible and therefore he is called in the gospels the son of perdition, the son of destruction. The more the more that we know Let's, let's just throw away the idea that there's some people on earth that know nothing about God, know nothing about the Christian gospel, and therefore they're not guilty. And on judgment day, God will just sort of weigh up whatever religion they did have. He'll just weigh up their hearts, and if they're good people, they'll go to heaven. But they haven't heard the gospel, so they didn't reject it, so they won't go to hell. You need to get rid of that idea. It's an unbiblical, anti-gospel idea that, that, that does damage to the doctrine of the lordship of Christ. God has revealed to every single person on earth enough about himself to hold everybody accountable to his standards. The the bad news is, however, that there's only enough knowledge in the human heart, there's only enough revelation about God to everyone universally to condemn them. There's only enough for them to know the standards that they are breaking. There's only enough for them to know about the God that they are rebelling against. There's not enough news in their heart, there's not enough information in creation for them to know about the grace that is in Jesus. For people to be saved, they have to hear the gospel of Jesus. They have to believe the gospel of Jesus. And yet on the last day of judgment, the people who have received the most light of revelation, the people who have been given the most information about God and his word will be those held most accountable to how they have sinned and how they have lived So my my exhortation is that if you're somebody who knows much or you're somebody who who has learned much, who has heard much, who has lived in a Christian household, you will have a, a horrible punishment in the lake of fire if you have not turned that information, that revelation into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can even take an example from this, from the Passover meal. You know, it was said in the very first Passover that it wasn't enough to be under the lamb's blood and in the house. You actually had to physically eat of the lamb that had died. Otherwise, you would die. And here's a picture for us that it's not good enough to see the truth of Jesus, to hear the gospel of Christ, to know a little bit about the Bible, sort of be in the room of the Passover, really close. You you know lots of people who are eating the lamb. That's not good enough. Jesus says, you need to partake of my body. That's a picture for you need to actually yourself believe in me you need to have personal faith in me or all that you know is no good for you. So that is the exhortation from the example of Judas. Do not just know, do not just hear, do not just see, but believe. For we are held accountable and responsible for what we have responded to. And you can look now at, at uh, verse, uh, verse 26. We will skip 20 through, to, through 25. We'll come back to that next week. But in verse 26, after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, it says that they had sung a hymn that, that actually would have been a, the Psalms 115 through Psalm 118 were hymns that they would sing at the end of the Passover meal. In fact, there was, uh, it's so interesting to think about what Jesus would have been thinking about as he's sitting there hours away from being butchered, hmm minutes, hours only away from being betrayed and then beaten and mocked and scourged by the Romans and beaten and spat on by the Jews. And as he's just hours away from that, they were singing Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. Some of the verses from those Psalms are poignant. Psalm 115 says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This This song that Jesus was singing reminded him there is life after the death. God has promised resurrection upon his obedience to go to the cross. In Psalm 116, he said, For you have delivered my soul from death, my my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Can you imagine Jesus singing those words moments away from his crucifixion? How deep they would have been resonating. In Psalm 117, it says, The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Jesus would have needed to remind himself of that. Psalm 118, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song, for he has become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He's singing those words, awaiting his death, reminding himself as we need to remind ourselves of the sovereignty of God, working its way through whatever this life throws out. God is bringing about his eternal purposes in Christ. Look what happens next. After they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, this is to the 11 now, Judas has left to go and betray him. He says to the other 11, you will all fall away. He, he doesn't seem to have much good news in, in the Synoptic Gospels, but, but in John's Gospel from chapter 13 through chapter 17, he just gives us this glorious glimpse into Jesus explaining Trinitarian theology, salvation theology. I will I will I will preserve you I will send the spirit to you you will have power you'll you will, you'll will, you will be preserved all of these wonderful promises but in the synoptic gospels all that we see is the gloom of this foreboding evening you will all fall away he says in verse 27 for it is written remember Jesus is relying on the will of God he's relying on the scriptures he says for it is written it must happen it is prophesied it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That comes from Zechariah 13, where God says that He will scatter all of the sheep after the striking of the shepherd. God God will begin from this evening in the Mount of Olives as the the armies come, God will begin unleashing on Jesus the punishment, the humiliation, the condemnation for our sins. Because He has gone perfectly forward before God in submission to His will, in, in bending His knee to what God has ordained. He goes forward willingly and God starts to unleash onto him after accounting to him our sin, after reckoning Jesus guilty in his eyes because of our sin, he begins to unleash and unravel onto him, pour out onto him his wrath, his punishment, his condemnation, the punishment that we deserved for our sins, Jesus willingly took. And so he will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And verse 50 tells us in Mark 14, verse 50 tells us, all of them fled; none of them was left. It is a true prophecy. Jesus has told them. It is a horrible thing to hear. None of them seem to believe him. In fact, it is Jesus who—sorry—it uh, is Peter who becomes most vocal, as we will see in a moment. But look at this promise that Jesus gives in the midst of this painful prophecy. The promise Jesus gives. He says, "But verse twenty-eight. But after I am raised up, I will go before you." to Galilee. Not cryptic, very plain. I will die, I will get back up on the third day like I've told you, and I'll meet you in Galilee. As a little um, application side note, J.C. Ryle at this point, he says, how much pain do we allow ourselves to experience in the Christian life because of the forgetting of the most simple of promises of God? He makes this application, and I think it's, it's so sound, to what we call the means of grace. You see, the the disciples had lost their Savior to crucifixion. They were worried, they were distraught, and they thought, well, how can we get back on the bandwagon? How can we we escape the judgment that is coming to us by the religious leaders? How can we receive blessing again? They just wanted to escape the pain, and they came up with all of their own ideas about how to escape the pain that they were in. But if they had just listened to Jesus, they would have met him in Galilee and waited for him. That's all that they needed to do was just remember that tiny little promise. Go to Galilee, I will meet you there. But they didn't. So they multiplied their pain. They multiplied their, their hurt and their, and their difficulty because they would not listen to the very simple promise of Jesus where he would meet us. And it's the same in the Christian life. How often we, we sort of fall into sin or, or we're not seeing the growth that we want or our marriage is in difficulty or, 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 or pastors do this, their churches are not growing. And so we all say, well, well how do we grow people and how do, I, how do I restore my relationship with God and how do I grow in my faith? And, and we all come up with our own ideas. I'll, I'll just go to a conference. I'll, I'll go and do a retreat in the mountains. That'll be good for me. I'll, I'll, I'll go to a medium or, or I'll go to some kind of spiritual deliverance ministry or, or I'll do something. I'll, I'll, I'll run to substances. People do all sorts of crazy things when Jesus has said that there is a place, there is a symbolic spiritual Galilee that if you just go there, I will meet you there. And the Galilee is the means of grace. Reading the Bible... Remembering the gospel, going to church, praying and fellowshipping with people. Those are the means of grace. Jesus has said, when you're struggling in your faith, get more Bible, get more word into you, get more of the fellowship of the saints, do all that you can to, to envelop yourself in the means of grace. And we go, that's that's nice, but I've tried it. And so we're like the disciples. We we just don't go where he's told us to go. We say, no, I'll stay in this church that doesn't preach the gospel. No, I'll, I'll stay in this relationship with somebody that is not a Christian. No, I'll, I'll keep on living in this somewhat sinful lifestyle, neglecting the means of grace and something will pop up. I'll just feel better one day. I'll, I'll stumble across some kind of spiritual guru and it'll all be okay. And Jesus did not meet them except in Galilee. The command was go, meet me there. And there he promises to meet us. How often we we multiply our pains, we we increase our difficulties because we just don't go to the places that Jesus said he would meet us. The word, church, prayer, fellowship. These are the things that God has given to us to enjoy. And as we will see next week, the sacraments. We come to this close, this last point that we'll sort of pull from this text. Look with me at verse 29. Peter loud mouth, speak before he thinks, the guy I relate to, my guy in the 12, Peter. Peter said to him, this is another one of those times that he just thinks it's his place to tell God how he's wrong. So good on him. He said to him, even though they all fall away, what a dog. Like Jesus, your prophecy seems very in line for these useless other 10 I don't know what Judas is. He's probably doing the same thing. But, but me, I'm uh, actually, you know what? i got a good feeling about Judas, Jesus, in all my discernment, being Peter. you know, I have a good feeling about Judas. It's probably one of those other guys. He says, you know, they'll, they'll probably all fall away. Look at them, you know, not one of us, right? But Jesus, I won't fall away. In fact, if I need to die, I will still go with you. He, he just does not listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus tells him, okay, you want me to get more specific? You want me to be more clear? Not only will you not never forsake me, You'll forsake me tonight. Not only that, it's going to be in a few short hours before the rooster crows, before dawn, and you're going to do it three times. So have that. Enjoy, chew on that a bit. And Peter just laughs it off. Oh, Jesus, I'm not the guy I used to be. Silly old Jesus. Uh, Actually, he says emphatically, he says zealously, verse 31. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right, Peter. Jesus is wrong today. We are feeling good. We are feeling pretty pumped. And it's always a good sign for a Christian when our confidence is based on rejecting the revealed word of God, right? When we read something and we go, see, that's that's such a severe warning for somebody in my kind of sin. But that's okay. I'm a confident Christian. I don't need to take that warning. I'm just not going to cut off that part of my life because I'm confident. I'm going well. I deny the word of God and I will stand fast. How foolish we are to copy Peter every day of our lives. We just think that there's some kind of wisdom that we tap into that we can read something in scripture, know that it applies to us, but apply it to somebody else and assume that we're going to be okay. This is, what, this is what Peter was doing. He was reading or hearing the word of Jesus and saying, that applies perfectly to these other guys. I'm sure they need to hear it, but not me. But in fact, he would be the worst of them all. While they would run once, he would run and then come back and deny him by name to the face of his accusers three times. And one of them was a tiny little servant girl that should have been no intimidation to a bulky fisherman from Galilee. Proverbs 14, 18 says, a haughty spirit comes before the fall. So we get that common saying, pride comes before the fall. The prouder we are, the more ready we are to fall. The the reality that we see here in Peter's example is that there is no sin into which the greatest and most mature saint cannot fall into. There is no sin point in the Christian life that you get to a level of maturity where there's just certain sins that you can't commit or wouldn't commit. If you think that about Christianity, like it's it's some kind of walk along a path, and the further you go down, the, the less possible it is to fall back into the same sin I could have back there. Well, there were holes in the wall back there, but I'm a lot safer. I'm further along in my sanctification. I couldn't possibly commit adultery. I couldn't possibly fall into a pornographic addiction. I couldn't possibly murder somebody. I couldn't possibly embezzle thousands from my workplace. I'm a mature Christian. And yet Christian growth is not away from the possibility of committing certain sins. The growth of a Christian is to further and further into watchfulness, which is the only protection from temptation to sin. It's not that you're a mature Christian so you can't do those things. It's that if you're a mature Christian, you will will employ the right means so that you don't fall. So, So it's not like some status, a badge that you get where you won't fall back. It's a level of discipline so that you keep yourself from those temptations. And of course, that keeping is by the Spirit's strength. It is by the Word of God and it is in deep prayerfulness. Watchfulness, Jesus would warn them on later into the evening as they are falling asleep in Gethsemane. They failed to watch and pray. And so each one of us fall asleep at the wheel. Each one of us get ourselves ready to fall into temptation when we do not keep ourselves watchful. Any one of your old sins and a thousand that you've never committed before are standing at the door and waiting to have you if you would just be self-sufficient and put aside prayer and watchfulness. Assume, like Peter, that you've had bad days, but I'm into my mature days now. Oh, I'm an apostle now, Jesus. I've rebuked you a few times, actually, Jesus. I'm doing pretty well. We are never at our most weak when we think we are the most strong. We are never stronger than when we are most aware of our weaknesses. John Owen, in his book on the mortification of sin, he says, sin is never more dangerous. It is never closer at hand than when you think it is far away. Because right then, it's under your nose. If you don't have your eyes on sin, if right, I want you to think of your life. If you're not currently thinking, I need to be praying about that sin. I need to be seeking ways to put that sin out of my life. I don't know what it is for you, but we all have it or we're Peter. We either have it and know it, or we have it and don't know it, and you're about to fall. But sin is close at hand, always seeking to have you. The the, the example of Judas, the example of Peter, the example of the other 11 is, do not fall asleep. Remain watchful over your own sin, lest you fall. As Paul, Paul said, let him that thinks he stand, take heed, lest you fall. Do not stand confidently in your own self-sufficiency, but always rely on the strength of Jesus on our knees in prayer and watchfulness. But isn't it a deep, deep comfort to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in this moment? How, how deep of a comfort it is to know that Jesus foresaw every failing of his disciples, still chose them to be his disciples, and except for the one that was devoted to destruction, he would forgive, restore, and love. Isn't that an enormous comfort for you and me? Isn't that an amazing deal of of strength to the soul to know that where Jesus said you all and Jesus said Peter, Jesus Jesus could just as well come into our presence this morning and sit across from every single one of us and tell us the details of the next time we're going to fall into a horrible sin. He could tell you the details of the next time you're going to absolutely avoid the opportunity to share the gospel. He he could tell you the next time you're going to deny to be a Christian. I don't hold that position. Oh, yeah, look, I don't know. There's some crazy kooks out there. I'm not one of them. He could tell you the details and he would be in no way less inclined to have you as his own, saved by his blood, through his wounds, with him for eternity. There is so much comfort in knowing that Jesus foresees every one of your failures and sins and has no point hesitated to come to earth, die and bleed for you, rise for you and now pray for you. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. There is so much comfort in knowing this. Though he sees it all, he is at no point drawn back. Psalm 103 says this, He does not deal with us according to our sins nor does he repay us according to our iniquities, for he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Jesus knows Peter. Jesus made Peter. Jesus knows what Peter is like. Jesus knows his infirmities, his sins, and his weaknesses, and he tells him, don't don't be self-confident. Don't deny the fact that you're a sinner. You're going to sin. Your only strength is my grace, Your only hope is the fact that I am praying that God would restore you. And in Luke's version, he is told that when you return, strengthen the brothers. Friends, every single one of you is going to sin in ways you wished. At that moment, your life would just end. You just wish that God had killed you before you committed that sin. When that's the case... When you commit something, you had promised yourself you wouldn't. When, when you were standing, think that you were strong, and then you stumbled into something horrible, and that is you. Remember the promise of Jesus. He is still open-armed, beckoning you back. He knew that would happen. He still died, and he tells you, when you are restored in grace, when you were repentant, when you were confessing to the Lord, and when he restores you, strengthen the brethren. Use that experience as a way to pray for others, to encourage others, and to strengthen other people in their weakness, in their sin, and their forgetfulness of the gospel. Jesus has undertaken to save sinners, and we don't become perfect until we see him in heaven, and he will never fail to fulfill that undertaking despite our weakness. The love of Jesus Christ is far too great. So we've seen here in, these, in all these different ways, in the Passover, in the betrayal by Judas, in the falling away of his disciples, and then in the, the vehement uh, uh, denial of Jesus' words to his face, of Peter, and then the denial of, of, of knowing Jesus that will come soon, in all of these ways, we see that the Son of Man goes exactly as it was written of him. What was happening in all of these things is not just disconnected stories, but it is God achieving for us our salvation. God was bringing Jesus through the necessary steps so that he would go to the cross, be pinned up and die for sinners. So this is good news for you. If you're, you're a person who is right now not believing in Jesus, not, not saved of your sins, you just don't know what it means when we talk about a clean conscience that can talk to God in joy and great assurance. If you don't know what that means, you, you're outside of Christ. And so the the call, the beckon, the the warning and the invitation of Jesus is come, be saved, be cleansed, be forgiven in the name and in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He raised for you. There is nothing left for you to do and for the Christians who are here. You're in need of a renewed reminder. You may be at at a spiritual strong point in your life. Your prayer may be what it has never been before. You may be reading and learning and discussing and serving in ways that you never have before. But every one of us is in need of this reminder. This renewal, Jesus' shed blood, is the only thing that brings you to God. Jesus' shed blood is the most powerful thing in the universe, and the blood of the eternal covenant will never let you go. It is by grace alone from the beginning. It will be by grace alone into eternity future. Never forget that. Let's pray. Father God, in this, in this lengthy portion of Scripture that details for us those, those elements, and those situations and those events that happened on the road to the cross. We see, we see shining through it all the, the, the flint faced certainty of Jesus. He was he was walking without hesitation towards that moment of absolute desecration, of condemnation, of punishment on the cross, because he had received a commission from you to come and die. He had received the promises of future reward and blessing. And he was surrounded by those that he would be dying for. Father God, we, we thank you that you have raised him up from the dead, that you have honored him. And right now in heaven, on his throne, he is surrounded by millions of Christians who were redeemed by his blood and are now praising him in his presence. Lord, we we long for that worship ceremony. We long to be there. We long to be in the day when, when our self-confidence won't lead us to stumble when our own sin won't lead other people to discouragement and and won't lead to the the reputation of Jesus being torn down, we long for the day that we are with you in perfection. Yet, Lord Jesus, in the meantime, would you make us faithful? Would you you give us the boldness to believe the promises of the gospel? Would you give us the faith to believe that you can forgive and redeem and use us for your glory? I pray, Lord God, that just as you forgave and redeemed and used Peter, that you would give to us a renewed sense of your grace, redemption, that what the past has been does not determine what the future must be for us, but in the grace of the Lord Jesus, there are mercies new every day, new for every season, for you are the sovereign God that can do whatever you like with this world. Father God, would you give faith repentance, and a believing heart to all those in the room today who do not know Jesus. Let them not be like Judas, who remained in their sin, who did not listen to the calls to repentance and went on his way to hell. We pray that you would give them salvation this very day, for it is in the gracious, loving, powerful name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reform Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.